Hi, and welcome to Ethnographic Imagination Basel, a series on reimagining the world from the mundane. My name is George Pomeu, and in this episode, we will talk about death, how the event of dying and the mindfulness that shapes life towards it may help us see life um, differently. Our guest is Larisa Yasharevich, an anthropologist based in Bosnia, whose writing explores a wide set of themes from bodies, health and markets, to beekeeping and changing climate, to death, love and Muslim eschatology. So stay tuned for a conversation on death, thought ethnographically and otherwise. Larisa Yasharevich is anthropologist and author of um, Health and Wealth on the Bosnian Market, Intimate Debt, um, published in 2017, uh, and of the forthcoming book, Beekeeping in the End Times. She holds a PhD from the University of Chicago, where she has also taught until recently, uh, when she moved back to her family's village in Bosnia, where she now uh, works and writes uh, by an apiary. Larissa's work has always stood out to me for its interpid ethnographic imagination, an imagination um, that takes on very difficult um, metaphysical questions from magic to death um, in a most cutting edge way. Um, Larissa, a hearty welcome um, to you. Um, it is great to have you on our podcast. We have known each other for a long time. Mm -hmm. We have been friends for many years. Um, you and I have been in conversations uh, um, about death in particular, uh, among other things, um, uh, for, for a long while now. And in light of that, you suggested that um, rather than organize this episode as an interview, which would be a bit disgenuous to... to um, uh, kind of our relationship mm -hmm. and our conversations, that we do it um, more as a balanced conversation. So let me start by asking you, where shall we start talking about death? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. And I cherish the chance of um, reconnecting with you. So I think we should start by just... Um, just saying a bit about how we arrived to death. Because yes, indeed, we've been talking about it and perhaps even writing about it in your book, uh, your first book, you also had um, at least one chapter dealing yeah. with us. So we've been working with and thinking about it, but I think recently we both sort of turned a more serious attention towards it. So let's just talk about, you know, how did we arrive to make of it um, a question to pursue an object of inquiry? That sounds yeah? great. Sounds great. Do you want to start. I should start. So um, there are probably two routes I can think of that um, brought me to death. Um, one is rather unlikely. So I went to the field in, and Bosnia is both a field and um, home for me. So I went in 2014 um, to begin a research on local beekeeping. And in it turns out, basically, that it was also a terrible storm at that point in time. It was 2014, and it was a devastating storm, cyclone storm, and then catastrophic flooding afterwards. And so people were actually talking about the signs of the time um, in the light of the catastrophe. Um, and it turned out that bees actually um, are have this 
very particular eschatological balance to them. In other words, eschatology basically is something that I'm thinking about, and I'm thinking about death in relationship to eschatology. And eschatology stands for teachings about death, finitude, the end of the world, and after afterlife. So because bees have a very particular um, significance in local culture, they are um, considered a prophetic species next to humans, um, the only other prophetic species. And in many ways, uh, the culture elaborates on the Islamic sources and makes um, bees an omen of, of, of the planet, of the state of the planet, and also their demise, their endangerment is seen as foreshadowing um, the bad end, the world's bad end. So basically, I started by looking at bees, um, realized that I, I have to think about eschatology more broadly, the end of the world, and bees were kind of key to it. Um, there's another route to it, but maybe, you know, tell me. Sure. Um, Tell me how I, I was you... I was going to respond to it, uh -huh. with, a, with an unlikely starting point, mm -hmm. the bees mm -hmm. are, and how beautifully so. I mean, this is precisely the, the question of ethnographic imagination. You think mm -hmm. of these seemingly fragile beings as the signs of the time, as you say. Um, um, and what a great place to think of, a, of an ethnography or anthropology and an eschatology of death, um, um, rather than, um, let's say, from whatever death proper uh, uh, might mean. I should just say maybe just very yeah. quickly, um, bees are often thought of as fragile yeah. and they are rendered fragile by the modern lifestyle and the engineer, engineered landscapes that they serve and in which they live. Um, but at the same time, they are, if you talk to biologists and ecologists, mm -hmm. they're an extremely robust yeah. and res resilient species. Now, the fact that such a species is rendered now um, so utterly endangered and vulnerable, even under the optimal conditions that you find in Bosnia, in, in local honey ecologies, is really worth pondering. And this is, I think, also where the comparison um, between the humans and bees and the kind of inextricable relationship between the human and apian fate that you find in Bosnia is not just a local particular kind of a um, viewpoint, but I think it's um, it has a wider kind of significance yeah. because it basically talks about both of our species that are seemingly, but they're both um, really robust and really fragile. Anyhow. I think that that, not just local, um, uh, that wider significance of related to death, there mm -hmm. is a universality in death. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also difficult, this it, it is very difficult for anthropologists to talk about that universality and how we attend to it is something that also fascinates me. Um, uh, very much. Um, like you, I think I started thinking about death um, um, in a place that I thought of as both Fieldside and my mm. home uh, in Romania. Um, and on the one hand, I think it's a very personal um, trajectory. On the, on the other hand, it's the thing that brought me to anthropology. Um, I recall that when I was already three, my great-grandfather died. Mm -hmm. um, and um, these are the first vivid memories, visual memories that I have. Um, and actually, for a while then, as a child, I would spend a lot of time drawing the funeral of my great-grandfather. Um, I still, my grandmother kept those drawings for some sort of evidence <laughs> of something. Um, um, and I'm quite surprised by the level of detail 
in the patterns of the fabrics uh, on the mm -hmm. coffin, the, the, the flowers, the procession. Mm -hmm. And there is something there that I think is, I mean, somebody like Michael Tausi, for example, would think that as a form of ethnography, you try to capture something mm -hmm. that is very intense, um, very um, um, undoing something in, in, in your experience and you try to capture it, objectify it. Mm. Um, and since then, I've been very much, I think, preoccupied on the one hand, on a personal level and passionate about the topic. On the other hand, not really quite able to attend to it, um, not finding the right way to attend to it um, anthropologically. I should say that I came to anthropology uh, when... Um, a group of Romanian anthropologists came to our village um, to interview my grandmother. And my grandmother was supposed to uh, gather the women who lament for the death uh, ah. um, in, in the village. And actually, the the it turned out to be a quite funny thing because it was out of context that they had to lament and they just couldn't start crying. They would just laugh. And at some point, they decided to lament their husbands who were still alive in the fields <laughs> just to generate the tears and there too the idea of like how do we get to do death how do mm -hmm. we produce knowledge about death and to that kind of irony that trying to produce knowledge about it also produces laughing matter there is something mm -hmm. you cannot point to pin down mm -hmm. and you just break out in laughter um, and those things mark me and of course I looked at death afterwards, um, primarily as an event, but also as what it generates, what it leaves behind. Um, I was, for example, continue to be interested and in, in write, I'm beginning now to write about um, the house of a great-grandmother who I've never met, died seven years before I, I was born, but her house was left like that because nobody had the money to redo anything mm. and just... I've never met this woman, but mm -hmm. going through the things that she left behind, her blouses, her started uh, knitting um, uh, pieces of knitted uh, socks or whatever, mm. uh, her photographs and so on, I came to somehow feel I know her intimately. Right. Um, yet she was never there. So this, what the event does, how do we deal with it? How do we symbolically kind of make sense of it? But then that extra stuff, uh, that is left behind, that haunts, um, um, if that's the right word, um, both the event of death and that what comes after um, when somebody is no longer around. No, this is fascinating. I, I just want, I'm taking, jotting down um, the notes um, as you speak. And what I find fascinating is the fact that you started off, you started this um, research back when you were three basically, <laughs> as a child. You can put it that and, you know, way. <laughs> um, but also, you know, what's fascinating is, first of all, I think it's, I mean, many things that we study, we have to also acknowledge the fact that we're studying them and approach them as embodied subjects, as subjects to the very events that we are stud um, studying. So there's no fault, there's no pretense of being an outsider. You are deeply involved. And especially, not least, or especially when it comes to death, right? So as a child, you were there, you were witnessing um, a tremendous experience, something that is a limit experience to everyone involved, not least the adults. And as a child, you perhaps also had um, um, a different kind of opportunity to really grapple with it, the way that um, the adults who are trained in the rites of mourning and commemorating so forth didn't have because they would just fall into default way of, you know, 
yeah. getting along. So that kind of witnessing and then drawing, kind of responding to it, I think is is absolutely fascinating. I think there's a there's a, a paradox there that, that's both in the representation, the trial to grasp, in, in the effort to grasp, and in the ritual itself. And both seem to be of the same nature um, mm -hmm. to me. On the one hand, the drawing, the symbolic, the kind of mimetic quality, reproducing it, trying to make sense of it, pin it down, is an effort that that's what the funeral is all about. Um, right. Um, how to handle it, how to, to make it uh, legible, understandable, uh, and so on, on the one hand. And then that extra thing, that something else that cannot be um, mm -hmm. uh, pinned down. And I feel that these two things produce one another. And if you look, for example, at an anthropology of death, I think primarily an anthropology of death has been looking at rituals, at the symbolic kind of objects that are mobilized. Mm -hmm. that, um, and, and in that sense, for me, I now realize um, retrospectively, because I haven't uh, written too much about it, mm -hmm. that's also a way of not dealing right. with that. <laughs> right. So more and more I'm interested in this, definitely the, the symbolic register, um, um, but then there's something else. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, and how do we talk about that something else is something um, really interesting. Maybe we can arrive to that, you know. For me, that entails uh, grappling with metaphysical questions. And this is where um, sort of you know, this is where we almost part ways with philosophy and get into something that is not very popular in modern philosophy, which is precisely dealing with metaphysics. Um, but we can get to that. But I was thinking about something else you said. You know, what is it that <clears throat> death, the event or expectation of it generates? And what I'm really keen on saying, it's not just mourning. Exactly. It's yeah. not just mourning, it's about witnessing. And in case of the Islamic sources and Bosnian Muslim culture, it is the anticipation that focuses you on the present, on living the best possible life on the, under the circumstances, on forming a particular kind of subjectivity, on emphasize, you know, grappling with the, first of all, with the basic ideas as to what, the, what is the human in the light of death? You know, what is one's uh, proper relationship with the world that is finite as well? Uh -huh. So kind of thinking or grappling with the ideas of the human as a finite, as a contingent subject in the world of relationships with other contingent subjects and, um, you know, facing the death and... You, you you use the word anticipation. I think mm -hmm. that's such an important way, mm -hmm. a, an important word um, to think about. But anticipation, I'm trying to get here mm -hmm. more closely at what the metaphysical um, um, emphasis might add, because anticipation can take many forms. Mm -hmm. um, it can be embracing, it can be planning, it can be... Anxiety, yes, a, a wide, the, the deployment of a wide symbolic registers. I mean, you know, in, in the mm -hmm. in, in village where I was spending my childhood, the elderly were preparing their clothes um, for death uh, way in advance. Their elderly people, I still remember, had their coffins purchased long in advance and kept in the attic. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a certain kind of welcoming Mm -hmm. of the death, a preparation for it, but also a sense that we don't know when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. Exactly. But here, the clothes are in the drawer, um, the, the coffin is in the attic, um, what have you. But then there is also, and I think we could rightfully also call that anticipation, a refusal to deal with it. Um, anticipation can also be um, not talking about it, being scared to talk about it. The, the 
speech itself being unpropitious because it almost brings it into um, into being. Um, and I think that, that that's something that could characterize a modern liberal sort of approach to death, a technocratic approach to death, the thing that it's... Um, hidden away, you know, the, the funeral home picks the body from home, um, the washing, the, the the preparation, everything is put aside. Yes. Um, the seeing of it, the ability to face it um, uh, becomes both scary and somehow unnecessary. Let others do it. So what kind of anticipation are we talking about with eschatology? So I'm kind of thinking several things you're saying here. Um, this conversation, by the way, is great. Uh, I mean, it, we need to carry it on afterwards. Um, so I'm thinking a couple of things. I'm, uh, I, I want to say a few things about awareness in particular, which is mm -hmm. also a form of um, anticipation. But it's, I think, awareness is something that you cultivate as a kind of mode of being um, in anticipation of the um, of um, the two ends, of the end of the life and the end of the world. But there's something else I'm... Uh -huh. So, but I also think it's something it, the modern culture worldwide has really is allergic to death and has um, that aversion to death has been managed and institu in, in institutionalized in all kinds of ways. But I think there is something um, also very human. Talk about universals, and I'm no longer afraid of talking about universals. So I actually cherish yeah. opportunities to think about to think in 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 terms of universals. And of course, death lends itself to it. You know, so there's something deeply human about being unnerved and and um, astonished, bewildered, uh, and so forth, and and unwilling to deal with us. Um, and this is something that you know Islamic sources, textual sources, basically recognize. In the Quran, um, there's, I mean. Death reminders are all over the pages, but, you know, um, one verse um, says something along the lines, the death that you've been running away will catch up with mm. you. And then um, this famous um, scholar, um, Al-Ghazali, 11th century scholar um, and a Sufi with sort of a lasting influence on Islamic textual and vernacular tradition, um, is, has this wonderful passage. He says, think to yourself, but oh, he also says, first of all, um, because we are averse to death, we escape from it. We would rather not think about it. We do, we use every excuse and life gives plenty of excuses not to think about it. But he says, think to yourself, which one of my eyeballs will the earth, will the worm eat first? The right one or the left? And so he insists, kind of dragging you into the most inconvenient, most mm -hmm. um, viscerally unpleasant kinds of uh, um uh, situations where you actually imagine and visualize death. But more generally, the tradition is basically saying, and this, there are prophets saying that uh, also alert you to the fact that death is meant to bring discomfort. Yeah. This is why it's good to think about it and engage with it. It is what sours your pleasure. But in souring your pleasures, it basically jerks you out of kind of uh, oblivion and reminds you constantly what kind of a being you are, because, yeah. because death is stalking you. And so much about the prophetic advice that has been passed and quoted is about, you know, not knowing whether the death will catch up with you before you swallow the morsel of food you had in your mouth. So that kind yeah. of keeping, but also in the Islamic sources, it's basically kind of threatening to gather the world's end 
and the personal death. But I don't want to yeah. get too much into it. Uh, I don't want to monopolize the conversation. But um, this is a very interesting. And actually, what, what comes to my mind is also thinking: How do you think of this of this um, teachings and bring them into the relation to the bees uh, yes. and the end times? Mm-hmm. You want to say yes? Something? Uh, so, <laughs> so. Um, So a couple of ways. So there are several tales that perhaps I should um, relate. There is one that's very popular um, and it's a hikaya, so from from Arabic word for um, um, a story. And it's a wisdom tale, basically, that, you know, once you start unpacking it, deeply uh, draws on the Islamic key um, sources. And it, it's about um, angels. And I'll, I'll, I'll retell it very quickly. So it goes, back, goes like this. Every hundred years, two angels open their eyes and they ask, are the beasts of swarming? And the fellow angels, those who keep their eyes peeled for the worldly affairs, they say, yes, the beasts are still swarming. The angels then ask, well, what about the sheep? Are they still lambing? And the fellow angels say, yes, the sheep are still lambing. What about the fish? The two angels ask. The fish are still spawning, the other angels reassure them. Well then, the angels sigh, the end is not yet. So these are the angels who are expecting the world's end. They're asking about other species flourishing because these are the indications of how well the planet is doing and how poorly are people fulfilling their responsibilities for the other animals. But the bees come first of all. And this is not an accident because bees mm. have, once again, have a very uh, particular place as a prophetic species. The honey they make is the fruit of divine revelation. And so the vanishing of the honey is basically taken as a sign of, I think of it as the ending of um, divine conversation with the world, uh, because that's what revelation is. It's a divine address. It's a love letter, divine God's love letter to the world. Now it's changing its tone. Um, when honey is vanishing, that kind of divine address is changing um, its tone. And, and the letter. So th- there are many ways, but this is just one way in which... Um, but do, I mean, let's go back to your sources. Um, there were a couple of um, things you were telling me about, um, um, and I think they go back to, I don't think you mentioned that yet, that how death is no longer a part of the um, urban, um, or death kind of witnessing and recording is no longer a part of the urban culture. In Romania, I was. I think I we were talking um, before about photography mm-hmm. and the photographing of the funerals. And actually, this gets back to this whole binary question that we want to escape as a binary. On the one hand, the symbolic management of death. On the other hand, that extra thing that cannot be accounted for, but drives a certain kind of investment, almost fetishistic investment in the symbolic and doing the proper thing and holding on to, and the. Um, One thing that that I'm I'm actually interested um, 
to 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 take on as part of that is the photography that was made at funerals. Yeah. Um, this started in, in in our village, for example, in in southeastern Transylvania, uh, the village of Ladin. Uh, it started in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And went on till I think the 1980s. Oh um, wow! Well into the 80s, and the idea was that the funeral had to be photographed. Uh, and if you do relatively well, you photograph the funeral. You photograph the coffin leaving the the yard, um, um, and the serial photography of the moments of the funeral and so on, just like you would photograph, presumably. Um, a baptism or a wedding. Uh-huh. Although I should say that baptism photography didn't exist until much, much later than funeral photography. Hmm. Um, and but I'm sorry, but wedding photography? Yes, uh, the, the married and, couple, you know, in a painting that would hand, hang over the bed of the good room in the house, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Um, but the the photography was quite interesting. And yet, do um, you know, many people with with uh, socialist industrialization were moving between the city and the yes. countryside and so on. And suddenly in that context, for the younger generation was living in the city and those photos became unpropitious. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't carry them with you. You wouldn't take them to the the city and so on. Um, and it begged the question, it became also a question of value, or, you know, the peasantry versus... Um, and But also a more, dare I say, metaphysical question mm-hmm. of... Mm-hmm. of What's at stake in them? What does it capture? Um, mm-hmm. So I came to think about the image of the dead. Um, and the other related issue is that the mirrors have to be covered at funerals. Yeah, do tell us about the mirrors. So you're supposed to cover the mirrors. And I would ask the elderly, even as a teenager, I would ask the people in a village, why do we cover the mirrors? Mm-hmm. Well, people shouldn't look at themselves um, when they're at the funeral. There is grief. Um, others would say the dead should not see themselves mm-hmm. in the mirror. Um and it created all these these uh, different things. But then why do you photograph the dead? Why is the image in the mirror bad, but the image in the photography mm-hmm. not? And the more I came to think about it is also about temporality. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, the dead and their image cannot be in the same time and space at once, mm-hmm. that doubling is highly unpropitious. Um, a photograph is developed later and arrives later, whereas a mirror image creates a simultaneity between the body in the room and their image. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doubling is quite problematic. And that's an example, I think, of what I was referring to um, quite uh, maturely mm-hmm. as that's something else. Mm-hmm. That's something else that somehow escapes the logics of the um, symbolic, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And that's harder to to get at. But you get to it through um, um, taking on precisely these practices, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm trying to think about... So is it um, unpropitious, you called it? Or is it no specious? Is it? I think it would be unpropitious to the extent that Okay, this is a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. The photography somehow, for those who kind of look down upon them, Mm -hmm. um, not only replicates the moment of death or the event of death, but carries its life or something Uh into another context. Mm -hmm. Whereas that's not necessarily how those photographs were meant for the peasants who were producing them. They were forms of witnessing, I would say. They were forms of producing evidence of having done the proper thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
And yet the ambiguity of them is also not to be dismissed. They can right. be both. Right. Right. And so I'm, I'm thinking about, we're talking about, um, you know, how death generates something else. So maybe we could talk about a little um, about, is it mourning then? Or what does it do? What does um, making death visible or uh, making the event, commemorating it through the photographs, so making it an object of um, um, what is it um, of uh, witnessing again and again after the event, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is it um, to live through the experience again? Is it a process of mourning again? Or is it um, a process of anticipating one's, one, oneself in the same role? Or what, what does it do? If, if it's, is it about mourning? Or and is it, can we think about in your context of different kinds of mourning? That this yeah. is um, kind of um, setting us... I, I, just to add to that question, probably, um, w- what is interesting, I think, in both uh, mm-hmm. our cases is that the moment we want to talk about death, we end up elsewhere. Um, mm-hmm. In your case, it was the bees. The bees become so central to mm-hmm. having, thinking about the temporality of, of death, the temporality, not just of individual death, but of a collective death, um, uh, finitude, etc., and what comes after. Um, and uh, uh, in my case, I, you, the questions that you just asked me, requirement to st- suddenly move elsewhere to memory questions of inheritance, mourning, not as something that is particularly tied to the event of death, but is a collective perpetual experience. I mean, one can think of ritual and commemorations and one has all that stuff. Um, but what does it mean to take out the photographs from a plastic bag, like my grandma used to keep them, and look at f- photographs of, of funerals once in a while? That's not ritualized. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mundane act mm-hmm. um and you know you don't have the context you might think it's very creepy mm-hmm. um but there ha- there is meaning there is something going on there mm-hmm. so the moment in which i think we we ask these broader questions as you just did uh, we end up in this elsewhere mm-hmm. um temporally spatially uh, and thematically suddenly questions of, of memory of inheritance of um of time um are all becoming central Okay, so maybe I really want to say a few things about elsewhere. Have you got time? Just a minute. A minute? <laughs> no, <laughs> not much time. I had it. Okay, uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> please do. Let's not. Please do. Let's let's um, end with it. So very quickly, you know, I, I want to talk about elsewhere because, um, first of all, you know, as a Muslim working with or being aware um, of that, you are supposed to arrive to elsewhere. I mean, that's the whole point. You're thinking about death as um, so that, first of all, you reconnect with the present in a different way, with the world and everything else. But also that you actually think of life as something that um, is um, everlasting, right? So you just show, you're moving basically to a different spot. Um, but also I should say, you know, that, and I, we probably don't have the time for this, um, for this, but, you know, another way I arrived to thinking about that is by working very closely with, um, um, Sufi Sheikh, an elder, a guide who for the years we've, um, associated and, and, um, sort of made friends was basically in retrospective, I realized was trying to teach me, um, awareness of death. Mm. Um, and so that was a kind of an, and so he passed away. 
And the entire time of our association companionship, I was um, cultivating the awareness. But secretly, I also started dreading the possibility that he was going to die because he became very dear to me. And he was also very frail. He was in advanced age. So when he passed away, all those lessons basically sank in at mm. that elsewhere, which I think is also located within ourselves. So, yeah, yeah. And then that became the moment where, you know, sitting with death, um, that is also mourning, but not just mourning. You know, I really insist on, on thinking about death and the end of the world with modes of, um, with sensibilities, with moods that are not just about mourning, you know. Anyhow, that's... This, this is beautiful because in a way we end on precisely that note, that death takes us elsewhere mm -hmm. in terms of imagination, mm -hmm. spiritually, uh, in terms of imagining lives. Mm -hmm. Larissa, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It's a pleasure having you here. And uh, for audi our audience who is interested in reading more um, uh, about Larissa's work, please look up um, her publications. <laughs>